This is section 51 of Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 155, Days with a Dying Hero. The contract for the publication of the Grant Life was officially closed February 27, 1885. Five days later, on the last day, and at the last hour of President Arthur's administration, and of the Congress then sitting, a bill was passed placing Grant as full general, with full pay, on the retired army list. The bill providing for this somewhat tardy acknowledgment was rushed through at the last moment, and it is said that the congressional clock was set back so that this enactment might become a law before the administration changed. Clemens was with General Grant when the news of this action was read to him. Grant had greatly desired such recognition, and it meant more to him than to any one present, yet Clemens in his notes records, Every face there betrayed strong excitement and emotion except one, General Grant's. He read the telegram, but not a shade or suggestion of a change exhibited itself in his iron countenance. The volume of his emotion was greater than all the other emotions there present combined, but he was able to suppress all expression of it and make no sign. Grant's calmness, endurance, and consideration during these final days astonished even those most familiar with his noble character. One night Gerhardt came into the library at Hartford with the announcement that he wished to show his patron a small bust he had been making in clay of General Grant. Clemens did not show much interest in the prospect, but when the work was uncovered he became enthusiastic. He declared it was the first likeness he had ever seen of General Grant that approached reality. He agreed that the Grant family ought to see it, and that he would take Gerhardt with him next day, in order that he might be within reach, in case they had any suggestions. They went to New York next morning, and called at the Grant home during the afternoon. From the Notebook Friday, March 20th, 1885 Gerhardt and I arrived at General Grant's about 2.30 p.m., and I asked if the family would look at a small clay bust of the general, which Gerhardt had made from a photograph. Colonel Fred and Jesse were absent to receive their sister, Mrs. Sartoris, who would arrive from Europe about 4.30. But the three Mrs. Grants examined the work and expressed strong approval of it, and also great gratification that Mr. Gerhardt had undertaken it. Mrs. Jessie Grant had lately dreamed that she was inquiring where the maker of my bust could be found. She had seen a picture of it in Huck Finn, which was published four weeks ago, for she wanted the same artist to make one of General Grant. The ladies examined the bust critically and pointed out defects while Gerhardt made the necessary corrections. Presently Mrs. 
General Grant suggested that Gerhardt step in and look at the general. I had been in there talking with the general, but had never thought of asking him to let a stranger come in. So Gerhardt went in with the ladies and me, and the inspection and cross-fire began. There I was sure his nose was so-and-so, and I was sure his forehead was so-and-so, and don't you think his head is so-and-so? And so everybody walked around and about the old hero who lay half reclining in his easy-chair, but well muffled up, and submitting to all this as serenely as if he were used to being served so. One marked feature of General Grant's character is his exceeding gentleness, goodness, sweetness. Every time I have been in his presence, lately and formerly, my mind was drawn to that feature. I wonder it has not been more spoken of. Presently, he said, let Gerhardt bring in his clay and work there, if Gerhardt would not mind his reclining attitude. Of course we were glad. A table for the bust was moved up in front of him. The ladies left the room. I got a book. Gerhardt went to work, and for an hour there was perfect stillness and for the first time during the day the general got a good, sound, peaceful nap. General Badeau came in and probably interrupted that nap. He spoke out as strongly as the others concerning the great excellence of the likeness. He had some sheets of manuscript in his hand and said, I've been reading what you wrote this morning, General, and it is of the utmost value. It solves a riddle that has puzzled men's brains all these years and makes the thing clear and rational. I asked what the puzzle was, and he said, It was why Grant did not immediately lay siege to Vicksburg after capturing Port Hudson, at least that is my recollection now toward midnight of general badeau's answer the little bust of grant which gerhardt worked on that day was widely reproduced in terracotta and is still regarded by many as the most nearly correct likeness of grant the original is in possession of the family general grant worked industriously on his book he had a superb memory and worked rapidly Webster and company offered to supply him with a stenographer, and this proved a great relief. Sometimes he dictated ten thousand words at a sitting. It was reported at the time, and it has been stated since, that Grant did not write the memoirs himself, but only made notes, which were expanded by others. But this is not true. General Grant wrote or dictated every word of the story himself, then had the manuscript read aloud to him, and made his own revisions. He wrote against time, for he knew that his disease was fatal. Fortunately, the lease of life granted him was longer than he had hoped for, 
though the last chapters were written when he could no longer speak, and when weakness and suffering made the labor a heavy one indeed. But he never flinched or faltered, never at any time suggested that the work be finished by another hand. Early in April General Grant's condition became very alarming, and on the night of the third it was believed he could not live until morning. But he was not yet ready to surrender. He rallied and renewed his task. Feebly at first, but more perseveringly, as each day seemed to bring a little added strength, or perhaps it was only resolution. Now and then he appeared depressed as to the quality of his product. Once Colonel Fred Grant suggested to Clemens that if he could encourage the general a little it might be worth while. Clemens had felt always such a reverence and awe for the great soldier that he had never dreamed of complimenting his literature. I was as much surprised as Columbus's cook could have been to learn that Columbus wanted his opinion as to how Columbus was doing his navigating. He did not hesitate to give it, however, and with a clear conscience. Grant wrote as he had fought, with a simple, straightforward dignity, with a style that is not a style at all but the very absence of it, and therefore the best of all literary methods. It happened that Clemens had been comparing some of Grant's chapters with Caesar's commentaries, and was able to say, in all sincerity, that the same high merits distinguished both books. Clarity of statement, directness, simplicity, manifest truthfulness, fairness and justice toward friend and foe alike, soldierly candor and frankness, and soldierly avoidance of flowery speech. I placed the two books side by side upon the same level, he said, and I still think that they belong there. I learned afterward that General Grant was pleased with this verdict. It shows that he was just a man, just a human being, just an author. Within two months after the agents had gone to work canvassing for the Grant memoirs, which is to say by the 1st of May, 1885, orders for 60,000 sets had been received, and on that day Mark Twain, in his notebook, made a memorandum estimate of the number of books that the country would require, figuring the grand total at 300,000 sets of two volumes each. Then he says, If these chickens should really hatch, according to my account, General Grant's royalties will amount to $420,000, and will make the largest single check ever paid an author in the world's history. Up to the present time the largest one ever paid was to Macaulay on his History of England, 20,000 pounds. If I pay the general in silver coin at $12 per pound, it will weigh 17 tons. Certainly this has a flavor in it of Colonel Sellers, but we shall see by and by in how far this calculation was justified. Grant found the society of Mark Twain cheering and comforting, and Clemens held himself in readiness to go to the dying man at call. On the 26th of May he makes this memorandum. It is curious and dreadful 
to sit up in this way and talk cheerful nonsense to general grant and he under sentence of death with that cancer he says he has made the book too large by two hundred pages not a bad fault a short time ago we were afraid we would lack four hundred of being enough today talked with general grant about his and my first great missouri campaign in eighteen sixty one he surprised an empty camp near florida missouri on salt river which i had been occupying a day or two before how near he came to playing the devil with his future publisher of course clemens would amuse the old commander with the tale of his soldiering how his company had been chased through the brush and mud by the very announcement that grant was coming some word of this got to the century editors who immediately proposed that mark twain contribute to the magazine war series the story of his share in the rebellion and particularly of his war relations with general grant so the private history of a campaign that failed was prepared as mark twain's sidelight on the history of the rebellion and if it was not important history it was at least amusing and the telling of that tale in mark twain's inimitable fashion must have gone far toward making cheerful those last sad days of his ancient enemy during one of their talks general grant spoke of the question as to whether he or sherman had originated the idea of the march to the sea grant said neither of us originated the idea of that march the enemy did it reports were circulated of estrangements between general grant and the century company and between mark twain and the century company as a result of the book decision certain newspapers exploited and magnified these rumors some went so far as to accuse mark twain of duplicity and to charge him with seeking to obtain a vast fortune for himself at the expense of general grant and his family all of which was the merest nonsense the century company webster and company general grant and mark twain individually were all working harmoniously and nothing but the most cordial relations and understanding prevailed as to the charge of unfair dealing on the part of mark twain this was too absurd even then to attract more than momentary attention webster and company somewhat later in the year gave to the press a clear statement of their publishing arrangement though more particularly denying the report that general grant had been unable to complete his work end of chapter one hundred and fifty five days with a dying hero read by john greenman